think a little bit about the first two victims in the Whitechapel murders of 1888. And to help, I thought I'd look at the ultimate Jack the Ripper source book. Stuart Evans, who together with Keith Skinner created the ultimate Jack the Ripper source book, first became involved with Jack the Ripper when he was a child in the 1950s, when he saw the Dear Boss letter and the Saucy Jack postcard at Madame Tussaud's Waxworks. But what really hooked him was reading Tom Cullen's book, Autumn of Terror, and then Robin O'Dell's Jack the Ripper in Fact and Fiction, and then visiting the murder sites in the mid-1960s. After that, he bought every new Jack the Ripper book that came out. Perhaps this early fascination with one of the most notorious crimes in history is what led him to choose a career in the police. His fascination with the murders of 1888 has never waned, and he is certainly one of the most respected authorities on the subject. His co-author, Keith Skinner, also developed an early fascination with the world of Jack the Ripper, and has gone on to become a respected crime historian. He's been a consultant on documentaries and films, including the film From Hell. Like his fellow author, his fascination with these murders have continued, and he's co-authored more than a dozen books about them. For both men, assembling the enormous amount of material has been no easy task. As they say in the introduction to the book, transcribing all the handwritten documents has taken many years, and has been a difficult task. Given the amount of material they were dealing with, calling it a difficult task must be an understatement. The determination was no doubt driven, as they themselves write, by the very human desire to find the answers to an unsolved series of murders that was, even then, of international interest. It is to help change an unsolved series of murders into a solved series of murders that made them produce their book. As they say, this work presents the full factual history of the Whitechapel murders of 1888 to 1891, chronologically presented and powerfully told by the people who lived in the shadow of Jack the Ripper. We hope that it will prove a useful and user-friendly companion. So chapter one looks at the material relating to the murder of Emma Smith, who was the first of 11 murders in the police files that ended with the murder of Francis Coles on the 13th of February 1891. Sadly, they explain that the police file on Emma Smith's murder is now missing. However, notes taken for a 1973 BBC presentation do exist, and there are press reports. Now, Emma had lived at 18 George Street, a common lodging house or DOS house, for about 18 months. Her rent was fourpence a night. Now, Jack London describes a terrible ordeal, spending a night in one of these places. So it's probably not surprising that she generally preferred to be elsewhere for most of the nighttime hours. So on Tuesday, the 3rd of April, she returned to her lodging, somewhere between 4 and 5 a.m. She told the deputy at 18 George Street that she'd been attacked and robbed. The deputy and a lodger helped her get to the London hospital, where she died the next day from her injuries. The inquest was held four days later, on Saturday the 7th, and apparently the police had only learned of the attack the day before. Dr Hillier, who attended her at the hospital, said at the inquest that the injuries were horrible. Her right ear had been torn, and there was a rupture of the peritoneum and other internal organs, caused by some blunt instrument. Dr. Hillier said that Emma had drunk alcohol, but she was not intoxicated. 
He said according to Emma, she'd been attacked about 1.30 on Tuesday morning near Whitechapel Church. Nobody appears to have asked what this woman was doing for the three hours or so between being attacked at 1.30 and arriving at her lodging house sometime between 4 and 5 a.m. It was only 300 yards away. She said she was attacked by three men. None of the beat policemen in the area reported any disturbance, nor did any mention passing her and her helpmates during her half-mile journey along Whitechapel Road to the hospital. The three women would certainly have passed more than one policeman. The Ultimate Jack the Ripper sourcebook then moves on to the second Whitechapel murder recorded in the police files, and that was the murder of Martha Tabron on Tuesday the 7th of August. The inquest into her death was carried out in the Working Lads Institute, which is right where I start my Jack the Ripper tour. Martha was found on the first floor landing of George Yard Buildings at 4.50. She'd been stabbed 39 times. The Times reported that the inquest opened on Thursday the 9th of August and quoted Dr. Colleen as saying that he did not think all the wounds were inflicted with the same instrument. The wounds generally might have been inflicted by a knife, but such an instrument could not have inflicted one of the wounds which went through the chest bone. Alfred Crow, a cab driver, passed the body at 3.30 in the morning on his way home. He didn't take any notice because he was accustomed to seeing people lying about there. He didn't know then whether the person was alive or dead. An hour and a quarter later, at 4.45, John Reeves found the deceased lying on her back in a pool of blood. The Times went on to explain that the body had not been identified. Three women had turned up at the mortuary, and each of them identified the victim by a different name. A Metropolitan Police report dated Friday the 10th of August said a description and photograph had been circulated, but the body had still not been identified. The authors say that the next relevant report is dated 16th of August, nine days after the murder. And the report says Henry Tabron identified the body as his wife, who left him some years earlier. The report says she was also identified by Mrs. Luckhurst of Four Star Place. She said the woman called herself Mrs. Turner, and she and Mr. Turner had lodged with her until a month earlier. A police report eight days later, on the 24th of September, says that Henry Tabron had lived with her until she left him 13 years earlier. She then went to live with Henry Turner for 12 years, until just three weeks before she was murdered, when it is found that the deceased resided at 19 George Street, a common lodging house, and passing there in the name of Emma. Mary Ann Connolly claimed that she and the victim had been drinking with two soldiers, a private and a corporal, from 10pm until quarter to midnight on Monday the 6th. The report goes on to say that she should know both men again, I then made an arrangement that the whole of the corporals and privates who were on leave that night should be again paraded, and she promised to attend the tower the next morning. This she failed to do. Search was made for her, but she could not be found that day, nor the next. When she was found, she promised to report to the tower the next morning. She did turn up, but she failed to identify anybody. A police constable who was on duty in George Yard had claimed he spoke to a private of the guards at 2am on the 7th. 
This PC picked out two men. They were both questioned, and beyond all doubt, the first was not the man, and the second gave an account of himself and his time, which, on inquiry, was found to be correct. Then, in a report by Inspector Edmund Reed, which goes over the events relating to the evidence of both Mary Ann Connolly, known as Pearly Paul, and the police officer who said he talked to a soldier at two o'clock on the morning of the murder, he concludes his report with this. Inquiries were made to find some other person who saw the deceased and Pearly Paul with the privates on the night of the 6th, but without success. And Pearly Paul and the PC, having both picked out the wrong men, they could not be trusted again, as their evidence would be worthless. And reading and rereading the police reports and newspaper accounts of the events surrounding the murder of Martha Tabron, I think Inspector Reed has a point. Their evidence is worthless. Today, eyewitness evidence is subjected to a much greater scrutiny than was the case in 1888. So I'm surprised it is the evidence of the police constable and Pearly Paul that is still the popular story told today. Perhaps because it is such a colourful story. A story that says Martha Tabron was out selling sex and as a result picked up a client, possibly a private of the guards, possibly somebody else who she found later. They then go to the first floor landing of George Yard Building, where Martha remains mute, and the client goes berserk. All in complete silence, because nobody in the flats heard anything. So in complete silence, he manages to stab her 38 times, before calmly sheathing that knife, so he can pull out his heavy-duty dagger, which he uses to smash through the chest bone. It's an exciting tale, complete with the colourful pearly Paul. It is, though, a tale that has been shaped by the constable and pearly Paul, whose evidence, Inspector Reed said, was worthless. So, how else could Martha Tabron have ended up brutally murdered? Well, we know she was a middle-aged woman trying to survive in Whitechapel in 1888. She's just left her long-term partner and ends up spending her last three weeks hoping she will end each day with fourpence to pay for a bed in a DOS house. On those nights when she doesn't have a DOS money, she finds shelter like hundreds of others, sleeping rough. George Yard Buildings being a popular and well-known option. At 3.30, Alfred Crow, a cab driver, passes the body on his way home. He doesn't take any notice because he was accustomed to seeing people lying about there. I think even with a casual glance, Alfred would have spotted the difference between your average rough sleeper, and the sprawled-out body of a woman stabbed 39 times with her chest bone smashed in. So Alfred passes by her as she sleeps on that first-floor landing. Then the crew who used Emma Elizabeth Smith as entertainment a few months earlier, or another crew inspired by the sensational publicity they had enjoyed, decide to see if the first-floor landing of George Yard building is occupied. Perhaps seeing a middle-aged woman lying asleep was just too tempting. A hand goes over her mouth, with her nostrils squeezed between the first joint of a forefinger and a thumb. For thirty seconds she struggles, but starved of breath she loses consciousness, all in complete silence. Now, maybe, like Hannibal Chollop, one of them possesses a great knife, a heavy dagger just made for smashing through chest bones, and this inspired a more lightly armed companion to show the superiority of frenzied speed over brute power. Then, thirty-nine stab wounds later, they walked away gleefully, anticipating the headlines that would inevitably appear. But no matter how that story is dressed up, 
It is simply a story about another rough sleeper being abused, and that could never compete with the story of prostitutes, uniformed guardsmen, and a leading character called Pearly Paul. Charles Dickens created a character in his book Martin Chuzzlewit called Hannibal Chollop, much esteemed for his devotion to rational liberty. For the better propagation whereof he carried a brace of revolving pistols in his coat pocket with seven barrels apiece. He also carried, amongst other trinkets, a sword stick, which he called his tickler, and a great knife, which, for he was a man of a pleasant turn of humour, he called Ripper, in its allusion to its usefulness as a means of ventilating the stomach of any adversary in a close contest. At around the time Martin Chuzzlewit was published, the newspapers had created a headline grabber called Spring-Heeled Jack. At the end of September 1888, a letter was delivered to the Central News Agency. The letter was signed, Yours truly, Jack, the Ripper, and one of the greatest headline grabbers of all time was born. Well, that's it from me, Richard Walker. I hope you'll join me for another podcast. And I hope I'll get to meet you one day on my Jack the Ripper's Whitechapel walk. Thank you for listening.